Hey there, welcome to Stories from the Mortuary. I'm your host, Aulani Santiago, here to administer your daily dose of death. We are officially back, you guys. Thanks so much for your patience while I finished up this episode, and sorry if I sound a little nasally today. I was sick last week, but my allergies and my asthma are still acting up, so I still don't sound great. But thank you for being here. An organization named Freedom for Gracie first reached out to me at the end of December, and a few weeks later I received a flash drive in the mail with hundreds of pages of documents, pictures, and correspondences. Around January or February, I was able to have an in-person meeting with my contact for the case, and we spent about six hours discussing the evidence. Over the next couple months between work and school, I read and reread the file on the case, and if you follow the Instagram, you know how big this file is. It's taken me an additional two months to write this episode because, unlike the other stories I've covered, this had absolutely no coverage at the time. This case has only recently gone viral, but not so viral that it's been reopened. When Freedom for Gracie reached out to me, they specifically asked that I cover all the medical documentation and the science aspects of this case because this is a science-based podcast. Additionally, as a funeral service professional in training, I'm also able to speak on everything related to the care of the deceased. So this episode is going to have a ton of information, but it's all necessary to get the full scope of the story. It's also very science-heavy, so there's a lot of medical terminology used, but I'm going to explain what these terms and what the documents mean. That way, I'm not just presenting information to you, but you're able to actually understand what it means. There's also a few audio clips in this episode that are really important for you to listen to. Today's episode is that of the suspicious death of Grant Solomon and the events leading up to it, as well as the unprofessional behavior of the funeral home involved. All of the information I got related to the Solomon family, the medical records, and all other documents mentioned came directly from Freedom for Gracie, and I want to make sure that they get credit for all the hard work that they put into gathering all this evidence. The research that I did comes directly from medical journals and other sources, including my own funeral service textbooks, and every source I used will be linked in the show notes. If you feel moved by this case, I implore you to take action to help us get it reopened. There's currently a GoFundMe to raise money for private investigators and exhumation costs, and if you're able to donate, you can do so by clicking on the link in the show notes. As of May 2023, $19,000 of the $100,000 goal has been donated. I also want to give a trigger warning for child abuse, including child sexual assault, as well as some mentions of suicide. Because our goal here is to reopen the case, I've decided to take special care in how I present this story to you. Due to the nature of this podcast, I decided that we'll use the general basis of the scientific method to present information. By this, I mean that there's going to be an explanation of what happened by the singular witness to the incident, and I'm going to use precedent to illustrate why this story doesn't line up with the physical evidence left behind in multiple ways. As you all know, in science, when we test a hypothesis, we try to prove it wrong, not prove it right. I can't tell you what happened, but I will tell you what the evidence proves didn't happen. First, as always, I do need your help finding another missing indigenous woman. Jojo Boswell was last seen in Awatana, Minnesota between 2.30 and 3 p.m. on July 11, 2005, after she was released from the Steele County Jail. She was last seen walking in front of Mills Fleet Farm off Interstate 35. 
An unidentified individual walked up to her and they started talking. Then they walked away together. She's never been heard from again. JoJo's interests include drawing, dancing, and music. Prior to her disappearance, she frequented 31st Avenue and 4th Avenue in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Few details are available in her case. She had brown hair and brown eyes. She also has a mole on the left side of her face and light freckles on her face. She has a scar on her right cheek and an 8-inch scar, possibly with staple marks, on her right arm. If you have any information on her whereabouts, please contact the Minneapolis Police Department by calling 612-673-5373 or 612-673-5703. When we return from the break, we'll begin this week's story from the mortuary. It's rolled over him and drug him into the ditch, and it's on top of him. He's trapped under the truck, and I, I yeah, he, I, I, somehow it drug him underneath it. Yes, my son is under it. I'm trying to, no, I'm, I'm trying to call 911. Okay, what's your name? Oh, my God. My name is Aaron Solomon. And you said oh my God. 1357 Southwater Avenue, right? Yes. How old yes. is the male? He's 18. He just turned 18 a couple of weeks, about a month ago. It's my son. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. This is not good. Is he awake? Can oh, please hurry. I don't know. I don't think so. He's not, uh, he's not alert, right? No, he's out. And he's trapped. I got three guys here, and he's trapped under the truck. Okay. Oh, my God. I understand, sir. Stay on the phone with me while we get somebody out there. What's your name? Aaron Solomon. All right, Aaron. Huh? What kind of vehicle is it? It's a Toyota Tacoma, Tacoma and it, the, the vehicle has to, he's underneath the vehicle. Okay, I've got the, that. And, and it's, okay, I've got that. What color is it? It's a white truck. That's my son. He, it's somehow it backed up. Yeah. Yeah, I'm on one. I'm on with nine one one right now. Oh my god. Oh my god. Oh my god. Was your son working on it? No, no, he was just getting out of it. It's the hill. It's we're on an incline, and I guess he didn't have it in park or something, or it wasn't engaged, or oh my god, oh Is my god, I can't still believe still not this. responding. No, no. And he's still no. under truck. No one can get yes. out from under. No, we, it's we no. We saw units en route to you. I'm just asking you questions for we can huh? update him, okay? Can you check and see huh? he's breathing? I, I, somebody's telling me that he's coming too. Okay. Maybe. He is, he is waking up. Maybe. Kind of keeping still. So he is well, he breathing? Can't, yeah, he can't move. I don't think he can move. I, I don't know. Okay. I no, he can't move. He's trapped. Okay. We got somebody in route. Now, when he wakes I, up, he might I'm be scared. I'm telling him, man. Can somebody I'm get down him. there and talk to him? Yeah, somebody talk to him. They're, Shit. There's blood. Is he facing up or down? 
He's facing up. They said he may aspirate. We need to hurry. Oh, my God. So does he have blood coming out of his mouth? Yeah, he's, yeah. there's blood coming out. Yeah, somehow it drug him down, I think. I don't know whether it wasn't in part or what or if it didn't engage the brake or it drug him underneath somehow. Okay. They said he's facing up. Okay. But he's bleeding from his mouth. So, Grant, turn your face to the side if you can, barely, but be careful. Don't move him, okay? We can't move him. We can't. We can't move him. Oh All right, these and they're there. I'm going to let you go, okay? Yeah, okay. Okay. All right. Uh-huh, bye-bye. The Solomon family consisted of four members, children Gracie and Grant, Dr. Angie, their mother, and their father, Aaron. Angie and Aaron married in 2001 after a six-week-long relationship when she became pregnant with their eldest child, Grant. Grant was born on June 13, 2002. Even this early, their relationship was rocky, to say the least. Angie was on the receiving end of Aaron's abuse mentally, physically, and sexually. Four years later, on October 17, 2006, Gracie was born. By 2008, Angie discovered that Aaron had been unfaithful in more ways than one. He had various affairs going on, was grooming underage girls, and was hiring the services of sex workers. Understandably, this put Angie under enormous amounts of stress, and being a medical professional herself, she decided it would be best to seek out a counselor to confide in. Aaron wasn't too fond of that idea. Around this time, he told Angie, quote, If you ever tell anyone about anything, I will make sure you never see your kids again. Angie started seeing Dr. Fortrell to help her manage the unbearable stress of her marriage. Aaron didn't like the idea of Angie confiding in someone alone. He wouldn't even let Angie go to the hairdressers alone because he wanted to know what she was talking about. Because of this inability to let Angie attend counseling sessions alone, he joined her sessions with Dr. Fortrell. It's at this time that Angie was diagnosed with PTSD and Aaron was diagnosed with a sex addiction. In January of 2011, Aaron announced that he left his job as anchor at WSMV, a television station affiliated with NBC. Angie and other sources confirm, however, that Aaron was forced to resign from the TV station after being found with inappropriate material on his work computer and phone. On June 18, 2012, Aaron's Aunt Ruth died, leaving him a multi-million dollar trust. This trust started dispersing funds the following year. In early 2013, the Nashville Police Department was called out to the Solomon residence for a domestic disturbance. Aaron Myers was an EMT for the Nashville Fire Department at the time, and he remembered this particular instance. That day, the fire department responded to a 911 domestic disturbance on Abbott Martin Road. Upon arrival, the fire department noticed the police had gotten there first and gone inside the residence. Aaron Myers and his colleagues at the fire department had seen Aaron Solomon around the neighborhood before, and he had always been cordial. Even on this day, when Aaron Solomon exited the residence, he was cordial with the men on the scene. Aaron apologetically told the responding EMTs that his wife was mentally ill and had caused the trouble. He remained friendly until Angie, Grant, and Gracie exited the house. A switch flipped inside of him, and the EMTs saw pure rage across his face. 
His demeanor had changed in a matter of seconds, and in his rage, he made a few steps toward Angie before the NPD stopped him. Aaron Myers and the fire department weren't at the scene long, but on the ride back in the fire truck as they discussed the call they had just responded to, they all agreed that they could tell who the instigator in that incident was. Things were already horrifying before 2013, but in January, things got even worse when little Gracie confided in her mother. She told Angie that when Aaron bathed her, he would put things inside of her and it hurt. Upon hearing this, Angie was equal parts heartbroken for her daughter and horrified with her husband. She confronted Aaron and he admitted to the abuse, but told Angie that he would take the kids away from her if she ever told anyone. Angie had already been seeing Dr. Michael Reed, a psychiatrist, to help her cope with her marriage at the time. After the confession from Gracie, Angie emailed Dr. Reed that now she had put the pieces together. She realized why Gracie would always beg not to be bathed. It was at this point that Angie started creating a plan to get herself and the children to safety. She took notes on her phone during sessions with Dr. Reed as they planned her and the kids' way out. By March of 2013, Angie had a decent amount of notes on her phone, but one day, when she rushed to pick up the kids from school, she forgot her phone at home. When she got back home, she realized that Aaron had accessed the notes and had put her phone in the toilet as a result. A little after midnight on May 9th, Aaron tried strangling Angie with a hairdryer cord. Grant witnessed the entire thing, but both he and Angie kept it quiet at the time. Grant was only 11 years old, and he was scared of his father. The next day, May 10th, 2013, was the day that Aunt Ruth's trust fund started dispersing. Aaron received upwards of $100,000 a month from May to August. In August of 2018, five years after this incident, Grant and Gracie were appointed Heather Webb as their guardian ad litem. A guardian ad litem is appointed by the court to represent the best interest of the children in legal proceedings. In a report written by Heather, she stated that it is her firm belief that Aaron Solomon used wealth and personal connections to win favorable decisions to the detriment of his children, leaving them open to severe abuse and the untimely death of Grant. Heather's involvement began when Angie filed a petition against Aaron in August of 2018 in the Williamson County Juvenile Court. The couple were previously in court back in 2013. In Heather's discovery as guardian ad litem, she spoke with both the children and their parents. Most of the information came from the children and Angie, as access to Aaron was quickly restricted by his attorney. The May 9th incident between the couple sparked differing stories. Aaron alleged that his wife attempted suicide by hanging herself in the bathroom with a hairdryer cord. According to Angie, it was Aaron who attempted to murder her at their residence. Heather needed reconciliation of the events of 2013 to effectively do her work. To corroborate his story, Aaron gave Heather the orders from Davidson County Fourth Circuit Court. Angie submitted the correspondence and reports from her counselor prior to the incident, Dr. Michael Reed, and a report from Dr. Michael Murphy, who treated her the night she was taken to Centennial Hospital. The court orders contradict and starkly contrast both sets of medical records. The discharge summary from Centennial Hospital indicated that Angie was telling the truth. It stated that Angie's parents were irrational by all accounts and that Aaron was possibly irrational and abusive. Their review of these records were as follows, quote, 
These mental health records indicated that Dr. Solomon was seen at Centennial Medical Center for suicidal ideation. The record indicated that her stay was less than 24 hours. The psychiatric evaluation noted that Dr. Solomon was brought in by the paramedics and accompanied by her husband and her parents. The note indicated that the staff admitted her out of caution, despite the confusing presentation of abuse versus suicide attempt. The note suggested that Dr. Solomon was likely in an abusive relationship with her husband. It also indicated that she was likely mistreated as a child by her parents. The admitting physician, Michael Murphy, MD, according to the chart, spoke with Dr. Solomon's outpatient psychiatrist who stated that the plan was to move Dr. Solomon out of the house safely and obtain a divorce. The chart indicated that Dr. Solomon did not appear to have signs of depression and she was not voicing suicidal ideation. The chart indicated that the outpatient psychiatrist confirmed that the patient has not had a previous suicide attempt. The admitting physician documented that it does not appear that there is any evidence that the patient tried to hang herself, and I do not believe that she is in an acute mood state that would lead to suicide. She was admitted with a diagnosis of major depression and remission and given a global assessment of functioning score of 55. In the hospital course of the discharge summary, it was noted that the patient was telling the truth about the situation and that she was in a risky situation with her husband, who appeared to be possibly volatile and violent, although this was uncertain. The patient's parents also appeared to be unreliable sources of information. Part of Angie's aftercare plan created by Dr. Reed, Dr. Murphy, and a social worker was to seek an order of protection against Aaron. Directly after her release on May 11, 2013, Angie was taken to night court to seek an order of protection for herself and the children. The order was granted, but only for Angie, as the judge struck the children's names. Normally, the Department of Children and Family Services get involved as soon as a child makes allegations of sexual abuse. However, Angie remarked that this department failed her as well. When Angie returned home from night court, she couldn't find Gracie or Grant, and Erin wouldn't pick up calls or texts. She tried calling her parents and her in-laws, but no one picked up. The next day, May 12th, was Mother's Day. Angie was hopeful that Erin would bring the kids back because of the holiday. Instead, Erin called the Metropolitan Nashville Police Department, or MNPD, and told them that Angie was suicidal. When they showed up at her door, they quickly realized that she wasn't suicidal as they had been told, and they left without taking any further action. It started to dawn on Angie that Aaron was making good on his promise to take the children away from her, and unfortunately, her parents were no help. In fact, when she disclosed the abuse to her father, he said that he couldn't see what she was talking about, and even if he did, it didn't matter, because husbands are allowed to do what they want with their wives. Three days later, Angie still hadn't heard a word from anyone in her family about her kids, so she took it upon herself to call the MNPD. Her complaint was taken seriously up until the point where a higher-up got Aaron on the phone. On the 14th, Judge Philip Smith entered an order of protection for Aaron and the children against Angie. He cited the hospital visit and the incident leading up to it as the reason why. This would be the first in the series of divergences between professional medical opinions and orders from Judge Smith. Angie didn't find out about this order of protection against her until the next day on the 15th, the day she also found out that Aaron had filed for divorce. It was around this time in the middle of May that Gracie graduated from kindergarten at Grace Christian Academy, but Angie wasn't allowed to attend. Aaron returned home with Grant and Gracie on the 26th of May, along with Angie's parents. 
Aaron told Angie that if she behaved, he and the kids would stay. Then, in another round of emotional ping-pong, Aaron woke the kids up at 5 a.m. the next morning. He told them they were going to get apple fritters for their mom, but after stopping at Donut Den, Aaron didn't take the route back home. When Grant realized his father wasn't taking them back to their mom, he tried jumping out of the car. Aaron grabbed his wrist so hard that Grant thought he had broken it. On June 21st, Aaron sought a continuance of the Order of Protection. In the order dated July 19, 2013, Judge Smith stated, quote, The court finds, simply stated, it does not believe Miss Solomon's testimony. The court, as a finding of fact, finds that it does believe that Miss Solomon attempted to commit suicide. This directly opposes Angie's psychiatric discharge summary from Centennial Hospital in May, the latter part of which stated, quote, the patient was not started on any medications as it did not appear that she was in any kind of depressed state or in need of any acute psychiatric treatment. In that same order from July 19th, Judge Smith stated, quote, The court makes a finding that it is quite concerned about the safety of the minor children, even in a supervised setting with the mother. In cases of concerns for children's well-being, it's common to appoint a guardian ad litem. While Heather Webb was eventually appointed to represent the children five years later in 2018, back in 2013, when Judge Smith stated his concern for the safety of Grant and Gracie, Angie's attorney's motion for guardian ad litem representation was opposed by Aaron's attorney. Judge Smith denied the motion for the children's representation, but required Angie to submit another psychological evaluation. In the July 19th court order, Judge Smith stated, quote, that mother shall be awarded no parenting time at this time until the court receives Dr. Freeman's report. By the next week, Angie scheduled her forensic mental health evaluation. In conclusions from sessions with Angie and others, Dr. Freeman stated, quote, There is ample evidence to suggest that Dr. Solomon is a fully capable parent. There is no data to indicate that Dr. Solomon is at risk of harming her children. The next court date was November 15, 2013, where these findings were shared. Upon hearing these findings, Aaron's attorney questioned the ability of Dr. Freeman to be able to determine the truthfulness and psychological state of Angie. Judge Smith gave no further consideration to Dr. Freeman's forensic mental health evaluation. Once again, Judge Smith contradicted the opinions of medical professionals. Just two days earlier on November 17th, Judge Smith received a $1,000 donation to his campaign from none other than D. Scott Parsley, Aaron Solomon's legal representation. It should be noted that Judge Smith ran unopposed in both the primary and general election that year and didn't hold a single campaign event. Another hearing was held a week later. Dr. Reed, who had also counseled Angie, was questioned by Dr. Freeman for her evaluation. In Dr. Freeman's report, he wrote, quote, Dr. Reed said he has treated her since September 2012. She's an excellent mother and a hardworking pharmacist who suffered from depression and responded to medication. He does not believe that Dr. Solomon is suicidal or ever was suicidal in the past. He reported that the hospitalization was a bizarre event. He mentioned that his interaction with her husband has only been through email. He noted that the content of the email communication seemed manipulative. He stated that Mr. Solomon was trying to prevent Dr. Solomon from making her appointments. Aaron's attorney, D. Scott Parsley, then used this statement as a reason why Dr. Reed wasn't an appropriate counselor for Angie. 
because Dr. Reed didn't believe Aaron. He also went on to tell Judge Smith that it's a problem that Angie would lie to Dr. Freeman like that. To once again appease the court in the best interest of her children, Angie attended sessions with their recommended counselor, Dr. Ruth Smith, in addition to her sessions with Dr. Reed. By October 16th, it had been nearly four months since Angie had seen her kids. When writing to her counselor about her grievances, she realized that she would have to meticulously document Aaron's abuse and manipulation in order to get Grant and Gracie back. Angie didn't see the kids until February of 2014, nearly eight months after the court hearing in June of 2013. Angie took a picture of Gracie's eyes at the time. They were red and swollen. On June 20th, 2014, after several counseling sessions with Angie, who at this point has had very limited supervised visits with Grant and Gracie, Dr. Smith testified in an affidavit to the court. She stated, quote, My diagnosis for Dr. Solomon is PTSD caused by the abusive marriage she's been in since 2001. She's a very capable, hardworking, responsible, and strong woman who is gradually ruined by her husband, Aaron Solomon. Similar to the previous medical statements, Dr. Smith agreed that Angie is a capable parent living in an abusive household. Dr. Reed's affidavit stated, quote, Dr. Solomon has had a horrible experience in regards to her pending divorce. In my opinion, her husband Aaron Solomon has done a masterful job in confusing the court about his wife's actual mental health. Apparently, the court was led to believe that Dr. Solomon was an unfit parent and mentally ill. Nothing could be further from the truth. Dr. Solomon is a loving and appropriately caring parent. Based on what I have observed, I could not say the same for Mr. Solomon, who, by means of trickery and deceit, convinced the children one morning to go get donuts for their mother and then took them from the family home never to return. From multiple comments made by both children over the months since, I find it highly likely that both of the children have consequently suffered emotional repercussions. Mr. Solomon's lack of insight into the future distress that he would cause his children by his actions is worrisome as to his judgment as a parent. Despite the affidavits from several different medical professionals stating Angie's competency and Aaron's deception, Judge Smith placed Grant and Gracie in Aaron's custody. Angie was allowed six hours of unsupervised visitation once a week with a paid supervisor dropping in for at least an hour. These decisions in the Fourth Circuit Court from May 2013 to June 2014 set the precedent for the children's placement. This placement perpetuated the abuse against Grant and Gracie. At this time, Aaron only allowed Angie to see Grant and Gracie during sports events. On November 18th, during a basketball game, Gracie disclosed to her mom that Aaron was still sexually abusing her. Angie knew that Aaron would try to deny the abuse, so she grabbed her phone to record part of the conversation with Gracie. When Christmas came that year, Aaron didn't let Grant and Gracie see Angie. The kids were absolutely devastated, as this would be the second Christmas they didn't spend with their mom. On March 16, 2015, Angie received an unexpected FaceTime call from Gracie. Gracie had been able to make the call without Aaron noticing. She showed her mom bruises on the inside of her thighs. Gracie told her mom that she didn't remember how she got them, but Aaron insisted it was a rash from her bathing suit. On the 5th of April, 2015, Aaron had Angie arrested to stop her from talking about his abuse of Gracie. Aaron officially had a warrant issued against Angie for failure to pay child support. Of course, it wasn't actually about the money, since Aaron was receiving the trust fund from his aunt. It was about keeping Angie quiet. 
From 2014 to 2018, Angie worked diligently to prove to Aaron that she could follow his rules, and in turn, he allowed Angie to see the kids more often. By 2018, the children were so fearful to return to Aaron's home that Angie felt she had to try the court system again. It was at this point that Heather Webb was appointed as guardian ad litem to Grant and Gracie. In the first week of August 2018, Grant and Gracie ran away from Aaron for the first time. At the hearing held on August 17, 2018, the court determined that there wasn't sufficient evidence for an emergency removal. Grant was in North Carolina for a baseball tournament, but when Gracie heard the news that she would have to return to her father, she was devastated. Heather then did something she had never done before. Noticing how distressed Gracie was to return to her father, Heather gave Gracie her business card with her cell phone number written on the back. Somehow, Aaron was the one who ended up with that card. It'd be that night, August 17th, 2018, that Gracie would tell Heather about five months later. Aaron, without the threat of Grant's presence to protect his little sister, had his body pinned against Gracie's backside in the same bed at the hotel where they were staying. After that night, she adamantly refused to be alone with her father. Gracie, only 11 years old at the time, stood her ground despite Aaron's threats. On August 29, 2018, Aaron met Angie and Gracie at a public's parking lot and told Gracie that she had to follow the rules set by the judge or he and her mom could get arrested. Standing her ground in the face of her abuser, Gracie told her father that jail would be preferable because at least they cared about kids. Two days later, August 31st, Aaron went to Grace Christian Academy to pick up Gracie right before dismissal. Angie was called out of the pickup line at school to come inside because Gracie refused to leave with Aaron and they were making a scene. Grace Christian Academy made Gracie leave the school with Aaron, telling Angie she could follow in the car behind them. Gracie's disclosure of the abuse she received at the hands of her father wasn't taken seriously by any of the administration at her school. In response to Gracie's refusals, Aaron's attorney filed an additional motion. Father's emergency motion to immediately return minor child, Gracie Solomon, to his possession. The family returned to court on September 11th, where Gracie's forensic interview was viewed by both the magistrate and the guardian ad litem, Heather. The magistrate didn't feel the need to watch Grant's forensic interview and created an interim order stating, quote, that the father shall only have parenting time with the minor child, Gracie Solomon, to occur every other week on day schools in session from the time that all school and school-related extracurricular activities are concluded until 8 p.m. Father and mother shall exercise a week-on, week-off parenting schedule with Grant. Only mother and Grant Solomon may pick up or drop off the child, Gracie, to or from visitation. On the same date, the magistrate read out to the court specific statutes that he would use to make the determination of dependency and neglect. It was directly stated to Angie's attorney that he would need to show evidence under these guidelines. On September 21st, Grant and Gracie ran away from Aaron again. This time, they fled to Angie, but she couldn't keep them because of the court order. Angie's attorney and Heather Webb conferred several times prior to the hearing to discuss the strategy for protecting Grant and Gracie under the provided statutes. Unfortunately, during the hearing on September 27, 2018, Angie's attorney didn't mention any of them. As a result, Grant's petition was dismissed and Gracie's was reset to October 31st. On October 31st, the protection from the interim order was gone. Angie's attorneys were unhelpful, and she was out of money for legal representation. 
Aaron promised that he would sign paperwork to divide the custody 50-50, giving Angie some actual legal authority over her children's lives, of which she had had none since May 2013. For these reasons, Angie decided to take a chance and withdraw her appeal from the October 31st trial. On the same day as the withdrawal, Aaron began stalking Angie and the children. Because of this, Angie withdrew her withdrawal and kept the appeal on the court's docket. The Tennessee Coalition to End Domestic and Sexual Violence agreed to represent Angie as part of their grant to protect abused women. In November, the administrators at Grace Christian Academy called Gracie into the office to tell her to stop talking about the abuse. Grant had had enough of how the school had been treating his sister and refused to go to school until he could have a meeting with the elementary principal. During this meeting with several administrators, Grant barely got a word in. The administrators blamed Gracie for her assault and insisted that they were trying to protect her from her bad reputation. Prior to the next hearing, Aaron's attorney filed a motion to find Angie to be an abusive litigant. Judge Johnson, based on the previous court orders, ordered that Angie was an abusive litigant and no longer allowed her to file in the surrounding court systems against Aaron for 72 months, until Gracie turned 18. In Heather Webb's experience working with children in the juvenile court system, the behavior exhibited by Grant was especially unusual. He would talk about his mother and sister with no problems. When it came to Aaron, Grant would say that he was scared of him and didn't want to live with him. He refused to go into details, insinuating that if he said too much, his dad would try to take him from their mom again, as had been consistently occurring since 2013. Gracie attended counseling sessions with Aaron to create boundaries that he inevitably refused to abide by. The amount of controlling and manipulation far surpassed any other case Heather had worked on. Common situations such as clothes shopping for Gracie would have to be fully done and approved only while Aaron was physically present to watch her try on the clothes, which further highlighted the sexual abuse allegations. In a petition for dependency and neglect, for emergency restraining order, and for other relief that was filed, more of the alleged abuse was revealed. Gracie witnessed much of Grant and Angie's abuse at the hands of Aaron. Angie suffered multiple concussions, and Gracie had been present when Aaron slammed Angie's head into a wall. Gracie suffered her own abuse, though it was sexual in nature. Though most of the abuse left no evidence, Gracie did have bruises on her inner thighs at one point. Aaron had also been diagnosed as a narcissist and a sex addict by Dr. Anne Fortrell. Throughout multiple counseling sessions, Aaron had been repeatedly told not to touch Gracie's hair. Law enforcement, the court, and counselors have told Aaron not to do this. Despite this, he continued to touch Gracie's hair inappropriately to the point where she had to ask her mother to tell him to stop. Aaron had also crossed inappropriate boundaries by sniffing Gracie's underwear, which forced her to hide her undergarments. It wasn't until January 31, 2022, that Aaron Solomon had been deemed a substantiated perpetrator in the court of law, meaning these allegations of sexual abuse towards Gracie had been found to be truthful. Bathroom privileges were also metered out and monitored, extending to the point where Grant was afraid to use the bathroom even away from Aaron for fear that he would find out. One time, Aaron informed Grant and Gracie that Angie died, and they fully believed this for several months. Control was also exhibited around important events or milestones, such as baseball, where Grant excelled and had college prospects. 
College interest and recruiting letters were hidden from Grant when the college wasn't approved of by Aaron, without Angie's knowledge. As recently as the spring of 2020, Aaron filed in Judge Smith's court to have Angie arrested for failing to pay child support. Control also came in the form of multiple threats of physical violence against Grant when related to vaping, Grant's truck, or other behaviors Aaron felt were unacceptable. Grant grew weary of the abuse he, his mother, and his sister were receiving. The night of December 14, 2019, Grant went to Taco Bell with a classmate of his. As Grant opened up about his past, he mentioned what had been happening to Gracie. He admitted that while he had witnessed numerous incidents, he didn't feel like his testimony would be taken seriously in court until he was an adult. There was no doubt that Grant was going to do something once he turned 18 in six months. He wanted to protect his little sister by becoming her legal guardian. In July of 2020, Grant contracted COVID-19. Aaron wanted Grant to go train with him at a special sport facility. Besides the fact that he didn't want to go because he hadn't been alone with his father in nearly two years, Grant also wasn't feeling 100% and believed the morning at the facility would be a waste of money. On Saturday, July 18, 2020, at 7.39 p.m., Angie texted Aaron, I do not think Grant needs to be working out until his lungs are more stable. My opinion is on the record. You are playing with fire. Aaron didn't respond. On Monday, July 20th, 29 minutes past midnight, Angie texted Aaron, Grant does not want you staying during his workout tomorrow. He assumes you will be there at the beginning, but he wants to do this on his own. He's a man now. Aaron didn't respond. At 7.38 that same morning, Angie texted Aaron, If you're up, Grant has a change of mind and doesn't want to die in Gallatin, so one of us needs to be there. Will you? If not, I will go and sit in the parking lot. Let me know ASAP. Aaron responded, I'll be there. Angie texted back, Okay, if he has any trouble, I told him to just sit down and use the inhaler again. I'm just telling you this part. If that doesn't work, next call is 911. At 7.37 that morning, a minute before Angie and Aaron's text conversation, Grant left home in his white 2015 Toyota Tacoma to head to Ward Performance Institute, known as WPI. Grant arrived at WPI between 8.27 and 8.37. At 8.44, Aaron called 911 and the call lasted for 4 minutes and 29 seconds. In this initial phone call, Aaron said the following, quote, My son's truck backed over him and it's rolled over him and drug him into the ditch and it's on top of him. Later in the call, he said, quote, Somebody's telling me he's coming too. When the 911 operator said that someone should talk to him and be there when he wakes up because he might be scared, Aaron said, quote, Yeah, somebody talked to him. Aaron asked someone there with him if Grant is facing up or down. This phone call alone indicated that Aaron couldn't see Grant and wasn't close enough to him to discern whether or not he was facing up or down, meaning he was far away from his injured son while making the call. At 8.48, EMS arrived on the scene, and three minutes later, the extraction of Grant's body from under the truck began. Grant was on a stretcher by 8.53 and CPR was started. Aaron called Angie at 8.59, but the call only lasted for six minutes as the police began questioning Aaron. At 9.23, Aaron called Angie back and explained the following. The truck rolled back and flipped over on its side onto Grant. The truck was lying on Grant's pelvic region. The truck flipped into the ditch onto Grant. 
He never saw Grant, and because he was weak-kneed, he couldn't go down to the truck. The truck was laying on Grant from the pelvis down. He was parked on the right side of Grant, writing a work email, when he looked up and the truck was gone and he didn't see Grant, to which he immediately called 911. This starkly contrasts his statements recorded by Angie a few days later. Officer Curtis McKelvey is one of the responding officers at the scene, and he took an official statement from Aaron that day. Part of Officer McKelvey's report stated, quote, I spoke with the father of the male subject, and he was identified as Mr. Aaron Solomon. Mr. Solomon stated that he was meeting his son Grant at the facility and that he had arrived there first. Mr. Solomon stated that he was sitting in his vehicle when Grant pulled in next to him in his white pickup truck. Mr. Solomon stated that he observed Grant get out of the truck and walk towards the back door area. Mr. Solomon stated that he then noticed that the truck was no longer parked beside him, and he started to get out and look and heard a loud crash and observed Grant's truck had rolled down the hill and into the ditch. Mr. Solomon stated that he went over to the area of the truck and observed Grant under the vehicle. Mr. Solomon states that he called 911 at that time and attempted to help his son. I was not able to locate any other witnesses to the crash. While Tyler, Mark, and Drew Hall didn't witness the truck rolling, they did witness the aftermath. They both confirmed that Aaron stood at the top of the ditch waiting for the ambulance to arrive while he was on the phone. In public statements made two months later, Aaron said, quote, We drove separately. I drove from my house, and we happened to catch up with each other on Vietnam Veterans Parkway up in Goodlitzville, and I literally followed him the rest of the way from Goodlitzville to Ward Performance Institute, which is on Highway 109, and he pulled in in front of me. I pull in. He pulls in and parks. I pull in just to his left, so I'm to the left. I had parked my vehicle just to the left of his. In an official statement in his own handwriting, Aaron Solomon stated, quote, my son Grant and I pulled into WPI separately, parked side by side. I was still in my car, but noticed my son got out to get his baseball gear out of the back of his truck. I looked down to check a work email, and the next thing I know, I hear and see the truck rolling backwards into the ditch. I get out of my car to try to find my son and saw that he was trapped underneath the truck and immediately called 911. So far, in Aaron's own words, he was parked on the left side and on the right side of Grant's truck. They pulled into WPI separately, and they also pulled in together after meeting on the highway. Regardless of the details that kept changing, Grant was in fact rushed to the hospital. He arrived at Sumner County Hospital at 9.08, bleeding from his scalp, nose, and ears after receiving chest compressions in the ambulance. It was documented that Grant's skull was fractured under the anatomy of injury section of the trauma criteria. He also had no obvious deformities or visible injuries to the extremities. He was pronounced dead at 9.28 a.m. When patients are admitted to the emergency room, such as Grant was, a primary survey is conducted immediately. This is a quick examination to assess and further prevent life-threatening injuries. A secondary survey is intended to be carried out once the patient is somewhat stable and involves fact-finding regarding what might have happened to the patient. This is also where a diagram of the body is used to show where certain medical devices were used and where injuries are located. For example, it's important to know where needles were administered during life-saving procedures so that the medical examiner doesn't mistake those spots for something like a drug injection site. 
On the secondary survey form from Sumner County Hospital, there are 32 possible injury descriptions and medical devices listed that can be indicated on the diagram of the body. These include injuries such as abrasion, crush injury, and foreign bodies. On Grant's secondary survey, only three injury descriptions were noted, bruise, bleeding, and laceration. Grant had a bruise on his left cheek and left pelvis. The bleeding came from a laceration to the occipital lobe, or back of the head. In the nurse documentation, it was noted that Grant suffered from blunt trauma arrest with traumatic brain injury. A traumatic brain injury, or a TBI, can be caused by a forceful bump, blow, or jolt to the head or body, or from an object that pierces the skull and enters the brain. Some types of TBI can cause temporary or short-term problems with normal brain function, including problems with how the person thinks, understands, moves, communicates, and acts. More serious TBI can lead to severe and permanent disability and even death. Some injuries are considered primary, meaning the damage is immediate. Other outcomes of TBI can be secondary, meaning they can occur gradually over the course of hours, days, or appear even weeks later. These secondary brain injuries are the result of reactive processes that occur after the initial head trauma. There are two broad types of head injuries, penetrating and non-penetrating. Penetrating TBI, also known as open TBI, happens when an object pierces the skull, for example, a bullet, shrapnel, bone fragment, or by a weapon such as a hammer or knife, and enters the brain tissue. Penetrating TBI typically damages only part of the brain. Non-penetrating TBI, also known as closed head injury or blunt TBI, is caused by an external force strong enough to move the brain within the skull. Causes include falls, motor vehicle crashes, sports injuries, blast injury, or being struck by an object. A TBI can cause problems with consciousness, awareness, alertness, and responsiveness. Generally, there are four abnormal states that can result from a severe TBI. The first is the minimally conscious state. People with severely altered consciousness who still display some evidence of self-awareness or awareness of one's environment, such as following simple commands with yes and no responses. These are people with severely altered consciousness who still display some evidence of self-awareness or awareness of one's environment. The vegetative state is a result of widespread damage to the brain. People in a vegetative state are unconscious and aware of their surroundings. However, they can have periods of unresponsive alertness and may groan, move, or show reflex responses. If this state lasts longer than a few weeks, it's referred to as persistent vegetative state. It's also possible for a severe TBI to put someone in a coma. A person in a coma is unconscious, unaware, and unable to respond to external stimuli, such as pain or light. Coma generally lasts a few days or weeks, after which the person may regain consciousness, die, or move into a vegetative state. Lastly, there's brain death. The lack of measurable brain function and activity after an extended period of time is called brain death and may be confirmed by studies that show no blood flow to the brain. It should also be noted that the trauma resuscitation form also contained the results from Grant's Glasgow Coma Score. The Glasgow Coma Scale, GCS, is used to objectively describe the extent of impaired consciousness in all types of acute medical and trauma patients. The scale assesses patients according to three aspects of responsiveness, eye opening, motor, and verbal responses. Reporting each of these separately provides a clear, communicable picture of a patient. 
The findings in each component of the scale can aggregate into a total Glasgow Coma score, which gives a less detailed description, but can provide a useful summary of the overall severity. The Glasgow Coma Scale and its total score have been incorporated in numerous clinical guidelines and scoring systems for victims of trauma or critical illness. The Glasgow Coma Scale was first published in 1974 at the University of Glasgow by neurosurgery professors Graham Teasdale and Brian Jennett. The use of the Glasgow Coma Scale became widespread in the 1980s when the first edition of the Advanced Trauma and Life Support recommended its use in all trauma patients. Additionally, the World Federation of Neurosurgical Societies used it in its scale for grading patients with subarachnoid hemorrhage in 1988. This is all to say it's a widely used scale that medical professionals have relied on for decades. The Glasgow Coma Scale divides into three parameters, best eye response, E, best verbal response, V, and best motor response, M. The levels of response in the components of the Glasgow Coma Scale are scored from 1 for no response, up to normal values of 4 for eye-opening responses, 5 for verbal responses, and 6 for motor responses. The total coma score thus has values between 3 and 15, 3 being the worst and 15 being the best. The best eye response is a score of 4, meaning the eyes open spontaneously. 3 means eyes open to sound, 2 means eyes open to pain, and 1 means no eye opening at all. The best verbal response is a score of 5, meaning verbal responses are oriented. 4 means verbal responses are confused, 3 means inappropriate words, 2 means incomprehensible sounds, and 1 is no verbal response at all. Lastly, the best motor response is a score of 6, meaning the patient obeys all commands. A score of 5 means the pain is localized, 4 is a withdrawal from pain, 3 is an abnormal flexion to pain, 2 is an abnormal extension to pain, and 1 is no motor response at all. Grant's Glasgow Coma score was noted as 3. This means he scored a 1 in all categories as there was no eye, verbal, or motor response whatsoever. The laceration is a telling piece of evidence. A laceration is a pattern of injury in which blunt forces result in a tear in the skin and underlying tissues. The force and direction determine appearance, depth, and associated injuries such as fractures. Examination of skeletal injuries, particularly skull fractures, often reveals the type of violence involved. It's important to note that there are several different types of lacerations. For example, a split laceration is the crushing of the skin and subcutaneous tissues between two hard objects. Stretch lacerations occur when skin is overstretched and torn, producing a flap of skin in the direction of injury. Examples of this are lacerations on the scalp when it hits the windshield in an accident, or laceration due to kicks by a hard boot, which raises a skin flap. Avulsions are the separation of skin due to some grinding compression of the tissues, like a wheel passing over a limb, or like degloving of skin. The forensic importance of lacerations is essentially threefold. Lacerations are generally accidental or homicidal. The distribution and shape may help in forensic reconstruction of events, and trace matter may be found in lacerations. Lacerations in the scalp are different from lacerations in other parts of the face and body due to differences in the anatomy and blood supply. The scalp is stretched over bone, making it more prone to laceration. The scalp also consists of five layers. The first three layers are tightly bound together and move as a collective structure. The mnemonic device, scalp, can be a useful way to remember the layers of the scalp skin, connective tissue, aponeurosis, loose areolar connective tissue, and periosteum. The skin contains numerous hair follicles and sebaceous glands. Dense connective tissue connects the skin to the epicranial aponeurosis. 
It's richly vascularized and innervated, meaning it has a lot of blood vessels and a lot of nerves. The blood vessels within this layer are highly adherent to the connective tissue. This renders them unable to constrict fully if lacerated, and so the scalp can be a site of profuse bleeding. The epicranioaponeurosis is a thin, tendon-like structure that connects the occipitalis and frontalis muscles. The occipital part of the occipitofrontalis muscle moves the scalp forward, and the frontalis part lifts the brows and moves the anterior scalp backward. The loose areolar connective tissue is a thin connective tissue layer that separates the periosteum of the skull from the epicranial aponeurosis. It contains numerous blood vessels, including emissary veins which connect the veins of the scalp to the diploic veins and intracranial venous sinuses. The periosteum is the outer layer of the skull bones. This is all to say that the severity of Grant's head injury is ultimately what caused his death due to its effect on his heart. More important than what was on Grant's body was what wasn't on Grant's body. Though the details of Aaron's story changed repeatedly, he alleged that after Grant parked his truck and got out, he was dragged through the parking lot underneath the truck and dragged through the ditch up to the sidewalk where it came to rest with Grant still underneath it. It's important to note here that the parking lot at WPI is approximately 50 feet long and the ditch is about 25 feet long. This means that Grant would have been dragged nearly 75 feet through a concrete parking lot and grassy ditch. Despite this, Grant had no scratches, cuts, or abrasions to his body. After allegedly being dragged through a concrete parking lot and grassy ditch, Grant had no gravel foreign bodies in his skin, no dirt on his hands or knees or under his nails, and his socks were clean, not reminiscent of someone who had been dragged through a grassy ditch. When EMS had Grant's body at 9.01, they performed a pleural decompression, which is a needle decompression in the lungs. This allows the release of blood or air in the case of a collapsed lung. Because of how Grant was found and Aaron's story, EMS had every right to believe that Grant would have sustained a crush injury causing a collapsed lung. No blood or air came out, which was a good sign because it meant Grant's lungs weren't collapsed, but it reinforces the fact that Grant's body sustained no crush injuries, which is common in accidents like the one Aaron described. In 2016, Dr. Joseph A. Prollo published a medical journal titled, Fatal Dragging Deaths with Soft Tissue and Bone Grinding Injuries. In it, he states that, quote, vehicle versus pedestrian collisions frequently result in skin injuries that can be described as friction abrasions, brush burns, or road rash. These injuries are often related to the victim making contact with a hard road surface. When the victim is actually overrun by a motor vehicle, the skin trauma may be related to contact with the roadway, the undersurface of the vehicle, or both. In such instances, the cutaneous or skin injuries are typically severe, sometimes with associated underlying soft tissue or bone injuries. If a victim is actually dragged underneath the vehicle for a substantial distance, relatively characteristic friction or grinding injuries can be produced, involving skin, soft tissue, and sometimes bone. Of course, in case of draggings, it's also important to consider whether death is caused by the impact of the vehicle hitting the person or them hitting the ground, or if death is caused by the dragging itself. This is partially determined by the wounds and partially determined by witness accounts. In Dr. Prollo's case study of two dragging deaths, both victims had major hemorrhaging from the abrasions and one scalp was avulsed during the infliction of trauma. Avulsion is pulling or tearing, so this means that the victim's scalp had been ripped from her skull during the dragging. Avulsion is the third of the 32 possible options listed under injury description and medical devices on the secondary survey, but avulsions weren't indicated anywhere on Grant's body. 
During both draggings Dr. Prollo studied, the skin suffered a great range of injury ranging from superficial grazing of the epidermis, or outer layer of skin, to exposure of muscles to grinding of bone itself. Each of the dragging injuries have a distinct feature. They have a target-like appearance. These occurred on curved areas of the body like knuckles, forearm, ankle bone, heel, calf, and skull. The part that protruded the furthest had been ground down the most. For example, the rounded part of the forearm of one victim had been ground to the muscle. The flatter parts surrounding the wound in a circular shape were more superficial abrasions, thus giving it a target-like appearance. Abrasion is the first option listed as a possible injury on the secondary survey, but abrasions weren't indicated anywhere in Grant's body. If Grant did have abrasions on his body, it would have actually indicated in what direction his body was being dragged. But Grant didn't even have a scratch anywhere, much less the abrasions that are indicative of being dragged underneath a vehicle. Other injuries caused by being dragged underneath a vehicle include thermal burns like muffler burns, chemical burns, electrocutions, crush injuries, and certain blunt force and sharp force injuries. Grant drove 50 minutes to WPI, meaning the truck would have been hot. If he had been trapped underneath it, he would have gotten burned somewhere. Burns are the seventh option listed as possible injury on the secondary survey, but burns weren't indicated anywhere on Grant's body. Rather, what was written under the narrative summary of circumstances surrounding death was the following, quote, injuries included lacerations to the scalp with bleeding from there, his nose and his ears. Aaron Solomon denied an autopsy for Grant, and with that, there was no further questioning or investigation into Grant Solomon's death. Under the cause and manner of death section, it was written that Grant's presumed cause of death was multiple traumatic injuries. His manner of death was ruled an accident. When Angie arrived at the hospital, no one notified her of Grant's death. She figured it out on her own. She was completely overtaken by emotions, dropping to the floor before screaming at Aaron. Baseball is nothing compared to life, she yelled at him. What the hell did you do? Aaron was completely glazed over, dissociated. It was a look that Angie was all too familiar with, but he didn't answer her questions, and he didn't comfort her over the death of their child. He simply stated, we're going to be a family now. On Grant's death certificate, his causes of death were listed as multiple blunt force trauma and run over by automobile. Under Section 34C, describe how injury occurred, it said run over by car. His body was viewed by John Poss, MDI. MDI stands for Medical Legal Death Investigator. The role of the MDI is to investigate any death that falls under the jurisdiction of the medical examiner or coroner, including all suspicious, violent, unexplained, and unexpected deaths. The MDI is responsible for the dead person, whereas the local law enforcement jurisdiction is responsible for the scene. The MDI performs scene investigations emphasizing information developed from the decedent and determines the extent to which further investigation is necessary. John Poss saw Grant's body, heard Aaron's story, and felt that there was no more investigation warranted. It should be noted that according to the American Board of Medical Legal Investigators, there are no formal requirements, education or otherwise, to become an MDI. Dr. John R. Pinkston was the physician responsible for the death certificate. He's listed as the certifier on the death certificate and is designated as the medical examiner. He also saw Grant's body, heard Aaron's story, and felt there was no more investigation warranted. In the physician documentation filled out six hours after Grant's death, giving Aaron plenty of time to share his changing stories, it was then noted, 
for the first time in any medical paperwork that Grant, quote, was trying to stop his car from rolling and rolled over him. Why would anyone try to stop a moving car, much less a giant pickup truck? On the cardiopulmonary resuscitation form, it stated, quote, patient with father about to practice pitching, put car in park, got out, and went to get baseball bat out of the back of the truck. Dad thinks truck was not in park, truck rolled back on patient, dragging him down a hill and into a ditch. Grant wouldn't have been directly behind the truck because he didn't put his equipment in the bed. As a seasoned baseball player, he knew the effect of extreme weather conditions on baseball equipment. In the heat, baseballs become softer and affects the speed at which they can be hit. In Franklin, Tennessee that day, the weather had a high of 98 and a low of 75 degrees Fahrenheit, with a median temperature of 85 degrees. At 9 a.m. when Grant was driving, it was 87 degrees out, which gives even more of a reason why Grant wouldn't have kept his equipment on the bed of the truck. Grant getting his equipment from the back seat of the truck also doesn't make much sense, because if he was hit by the door when the truck started rolling, how did he end up underneath it? And why wasn't the door open or yanked off the hinges? Why wouldn't he have just stepped to the side to avoid the truck door hitting him? Grant's shoes were clean of scuff marks and dirt, which is surprising considering he was allegedly dragged quite a length underneath his truck. His shoes were taken for examination by the same lab who tested Grant's truck, and the results were intriguing. The report stated, quote, The presence of bloodstain patterns were observable on the shoes and socks worn by Grant Solomon at the time of the incident. Despite the observable patterns, SRI chemically treated these items with Blue Star, Luminol, to enhance blood that may not be observable with the naked eye. During this testing, blood was present on the shoes and socks, all of which could be characteristic that Mr. Solomon obtained injuries during this incident. Remember, the only injury noted on Grant's body is the laceration to the back of the head. Could those tiny bloodstains on his shoes and socks be spatter as a result of the laceration? Angie arrived at the hospital a little after 10 a.m. When she went back to see Grant, the nurse handed her his shoes and socks. This is when she noticed the lack of dirt or scuff marks. The nurse told Angie that she could grab Grant's clothes and necklace at the funeral home. But the questions that arose from the discrepancies between Grant's body and Aaron's story would only be the first in a long series. The way the scene was left is also worth noting. The first officer arrived at 8.48 a.m. and the last officer left at 9.41 a.m. There were a total of seven officers at that scene that responded to Aaron's call. The scene was cleared in less than an hour, but Grant's goggles, hat, and phone were left behind in the ditch. Grant left home and arrived at WPI with his goggles on. Aaron saw Grant wearing the goggles when he arrived, but they were left behind at the scene. The same occurred with Grant's hat. It was found in the ditch. It didn't have any scuff marks, but there were drops of blood on it. But perhaps one of the most intriguing of Grant's belongings left behind was his phone. Grant had Life360 on his phone, an app for sharing your location with family. No one told Angie about Grant's belongings being found. On Tuesday, July 21st, Grant's girlfriend Hannah called Angie when she was on her way to the funeral home at around 9.30 in the morning. She noticed that Grant's phone was moving on Life360. Hannah said she was about to call the police because Grant's phone had been driving all around Gallatin. Life360 showed Grant's phone leaving the ditch around 2.22 p.m. on the day of his death. His phone was at full charge at 9.30 that morning, but by 12.07 p.m. the next day, it had dropped to 46%. 
Upon arrival at the funeral home, Angie immediately confronted Aaron about Grant's phone. When Angie told Aaron that Grant's girlfriend was going to call the police, Aaron insisted no one call the police. He said he'd call WPI and they'd be able to find Grant's belongings. Aaron left the room before making that call. When he returned five minutes later, he announced that the father-in-law of the owner of WPI found Grant's hat, goggles, and phone in the ditch. Aaron said that this man, Mark Thomas, took Grant's belongings to his house and even kept Grant's phone charged. Curious, since it was shown to be at 46%. Aaron volunteered to grab the belongings from Mark's house after the arrangement conference. It was an hour drive to Mark's house, but Aaron made it anyway. After all, Mark was a friend of his good friend Lee Lynch. Lee Lynch was Aaron's roommate in college and is married to Aaron's co-host on Channel 4 News, Holly Thompson. Aaron had his own network of support that was always close by. When Aaron returned from Mark's house alone, Grant's phone was worse for wear. But the way it was damaged was questionable. By the time Angie received Grant's phone, it had one central spider crack. A spider crack has an impact point, and glass around the impact point cracks around it and gives the appearance of a spider web. Phones run over by cars are covered in an even spread of cracks, but Grant's phone just had radial cracks from one point in the middle of his screen. Two of the different types of glass fractures are radial and concentric, which go hand in hand when glass is broken at a single point of impact. Radial fractures are the cracks that spread outward from the impact and they are known as primary fractures. Concentric fractures are the circular cracks that form around the point of impact. When a projectile such as a bullet or stone hits a glass surface, the impact causes changes in the form of fractures to occur within the glass. The glass bends slightly when a projectile hits it. It breaks when it reaches the limit of tensile stress and the projectile passes through the glass. In accordance with the laws of physics, a certain amount of energy from the projectile that's absorbed by the glass will dissipate along the path of least resistance, thereby creating cracks. Shock waves of energy originate from the point of impact, causing specific type of damage to the glass. This explains why a tire running over the phone screen causes an even spread of radial cracks, because the point of pressure changes as the tire moves across the surface of the phone. The condensed area of small chips in the glass is known as the mist zone, and that surrounds the point of impact. On Grant's phone, the mist zone surrounded the small but powerful impact in the middle of the screen. This suggests that the phone was likely cracked to an object hitting it rather than it being run over. Considering that no part of Grant's body was scratched up by the rocks of the ditch he was found in, it's unlikely that his phone was damaged by it being in the ditch either. But perhaps the biggest caveat to Aaron's story is Grant's truck itself. Aaron picked up Grant's truck from the tow yard about 48 hours after it allegedly lethally malfunctioned and drove it around for months afterward. Immediately following Grant's death, Aaron was spotted with Grant's truck parked at Home Depot. He was seen speaking to one of the investigators. Grant's truck could be seen every day in Aaron's driveway up until the one day it disappeared. After running the vehicle identification number, Grant's truck was found at a scrapyard in February of 2021. Angie was able to secure a broker and get the truck just before it sold at auction. Now, Aaron couldn't stop it from getting tested by forensics. Stidham Reconstruction and Investigation thoroughly tested Grant's truck. The SRI preliminary report dated June 16, 2021 started off with the following, quote, At the request of your office, my company has inspected the 2015 Toyota Tacoma pickup operated by Grant Solomon on July 20, 2020. The purpose of this correspondence is to memorialize our preliminary findings and to advise of the opinions we can be expected to render at trial. 
All of the opinions rendered are based on materials commonly relied upon by experts in the field of traffic collision reconstruction, which include physical evidence, photographs, scene inspections, vehicle inspections, and witness statements. These findings are within a reasonable degree of traffic collision reconstruction probability. Page 9 of the report stated, quote, On April 12, 2020, the Solomons Vehicles Electric Control Unit, ECU, was imaged by SRI's Bob Sheffield using the Bosch Crash Data Retrieval Tool. The ECU senses the severity of a crash pulse and determines the appropriate level of safety restraints to deploy. If after the deployment of restraints, the appropriate level of power remains, the ECU will record specific crash-related data. The Crash Data Retrieval, or CDR, report indicated that there were two recorded rollover events. These events resulted in non-deployments. Both of the events occurred on different ignition cycles and are not believed to be associated with the event occurring on July 20, 2020. In both of these events, the CDR report indicates there is a seat-belted driver in control of the vehicle. In addition to that, there is driver input in the time leading up to the triggers. The data from the black box is worth noting. A black box is the colloquial name for the event data recorder, or EDR. Unless the car is quite old, every car on the road is likely equipped with a black box. Event data recorders are standard on many Ford, Chrysler, GM, Toyota, Nissan, and Honda cars. Besides the fact that there is a seat-belted driver during these triggers, the report also shows that the shift position was in drive. This event couldn't have been the incident from July 20th because the truck was alleged to have rolled backwards, not driven forward into Grant. The other proof that this was an unrelated event to July 20th is because the report showed the accelerator pedal percentage decreasing, indicating a driver taking their foot off of the accelerator. It also showed the service brake status change from off to on, indicating the driver braking, further proving there was someone in the car and this wasn't the incident that killed Grant. Or at least, Grant couldn't have been the one driving if this was the July 20th incident. There are three factors that cause traffic collisions to occur, environmental, human, and mechanical. The primary factor that the report focused on is the mechanical factor, the 2015 Toyota Tacoma. Recall that Aaron claimed the parking pole must have been defective in order for the truck to have rolled after Grant parked it. The report defined a transmission parking pole as a metal pole or pin that engages a notched ring that's attached to the transmission's output shaft when the transmission shifter lever is placed in the park position. When the shifter's in park, the pawl's locked into one of the notches in the metal ring that's attached to the output shaft, which stops the shaft and drive wheels from turning. The report stated, quote, The different tests that Toyota was subjected to gave no indication that the transmission parking pawl was defective and unable to hold the vehicle when it was placed into park. If the parking pawl isn't defective, then how'd the truck roll back on Grant? If he somehow exited the vehicle while it was in reverse, it would have left him behind before he could catch up to it. On May 6th, the 2015 Toyota Tacoma was inspected again. The vehicle's control units were downloaded and three diagnostic trouble codes were present. It was determined that none of those diagnostic trouble codes would have caused the vehicle to roll while it was in park. When the Gallatin Police Department photographed the inside of the vehicle, however, it showed the transmission in the parking position. The wheel was also turned 90 degrees to the right. Applying the logic of Aaron's story, that means that Grant parked his truck, then exited, and his truck remained perfectly still until he made his way to the back to grab his bats. Then the truck, still in park, rolled backwards into Grant, dragging him about 50 feet through a concrete parking lot, 
about 25 feet through a grassy ditch and a patch of rocks, up near the curb, before resting facing downwards into the ditch, with the wheels turned 90 degrees to the right, all while being in park. Recall that all of the tests performed on Grant's truck proved that it was physically impossible for it to roll while it was in the parked position. The SRI report also stated the following, quote, If the vehicle were placed in any other gear, a driver would not be able to exit the vehicle without the vehicle beginning to roll back immediately. Both on July 28, 2020 and May 6, 2021, the 2015 Toyota Tacoma appeared to have no mechanical deficiencies which would cause the vehicle to roll backward while in the park position. The other odd thing about the truck was the rear bumper. It was tilted downward, and although a large rock dented the driver's side when the truck was lifted to get Grant, there were no dents or scratches on the chrome bumper. There are only four bolts that need to be loosened in order to make the rear bumper sag. With Grant leaving home at 7.37 and arriving at 8.27, there were 17 minutes before Aaron called 911. Furthermore, according to Toyota, the Tacoma's bumpers are meant to fold under even minor pressure. The stock bumper that comes with the Toyota Tacoma is designed to fold and crumple in the event the vehicle hits something. In a serious accident, the more force the vehicle can take, the better, because it reduces the risk of bodily injury. However, truly serious accidents aren't nearly as common as bumping into something or minor collisions. The Tacoma can't tell the difference between these two scenarios, and it might still crumple all the same. Any tampering that may have been done to Grant's truck was nearly impossible to find when it was finally obtained for forensic testing because the truck had been stripped. It no longer had most of the front and rear bumpers, and the covers on top of the wheel wells were missing. The only person who possessed the truck between the time it was photographed at WPI to the time it was photographed for auction was Aaron. Recall, just two days after this allegedly dangerous truck rolled over Grant, Aaron was seen driving it around town. Aaron kept Grant's truck for nearly a year, and he claimed that in late February of 2021, he got into an accident that totaled the truck. By February 23rd, Aaron had listed Grant's truck on the website for SCA auctions. In listing photos, it shows the allegedly totaled truck, which really was just Grant's truck stripped of a few exterior parts. Listing Grant's truck for auction was the twist of the knife because Aaron had specifically promised Gracie he wouldn't sell her brother's truck. According to the Carfax on Grant's truck, a salvage title, also known as a salvage certificate, was issued on March 12th of 2021. A salvage title vehicle is an official indication that a vehicle has been damaged and is considered a total loss by an insurance company that paid out on a damaged vehicle claim. In most cases, the vehicle has been involved in a significant accident, and the high cost of repairing the vehicle may be more than what it's worth. In that scenario, the insurance company will declare a total loss and take repossession of that vehicle. Looking to recoup its costs, the insurance firm will often resell the vehicle to an auto repair company where the car, truck, or SUV is repaired or even rebuilt. By law, in most states, the next title on that repaired or rebuilt vehicle is referred to as a salvage title, as a means of letting future potential buyers know the vehicle's been damaged. Salvage title laws vary by state, but for Tennessee, there are only two forms required. A completed application for Tennessee salvage slash non-repairable certificate form and the original certificate of title. These two forms are submitted to the Tennessee Department of Revenue. According to the application, the purpose is as follows, quote, a salvage vehicle is a passenger motor vehicle which has been wrecked, destroyed, or damaged to the extent that the repair cost would exceed 75% of the retail value of the vehicle. 
A non-repairable vehicle is a passenger motor vehicle which is incapable of safe operation for use on roads or highways and which has no resale value except as a source for parts or scrap. After the vehicle has been deemed a total loss and a total loss claim has been paid, the insurance company or owner must obtain a salvage or non-repairable certificate by submitting this application. These certificates of title serve only to establish ownership of the vehicle. No vehicle deemed as salvage or non-repairable can be registered in or operate on the roads and highways of the state of Tennessee. A vehicle that receives a salvage certificate may be rebuilt to be roadworthy, but must first go through the rebuilt vehicle process. There's no cost to obtain a salvage slash non-repairable certificate. This application is a single page long and consists of four parts labeled A through D. Part C only gets filled out if the application is being filled out by an insurance company. In this case, that would be Tennessee Farm Bureau Insurance. But recall how forensics determined that the vehicle didn't have significant damage done to it, and none of Aaron's stories of accidents could be corroborated by the electronic control unit. The only way a salvage certificate could have been attained for Grant's truck was through fraudulent means. This caught the attention of Hodges & Associates, a private investigation firm, after the truck had been tested by forensics. A letter dated July 9th, 2021, after an attempted interview with Brad Riddle, who was key in obtaining the salvage certificate, stated the following, quote, Mr. Brad Riddle, Senior Claims Adjuster, Tennessee Farm Bureau Insurance, 42 Hendrickson Drive, Manchester, Tennessee, 37355, was contacted at his place of business. The receptionist at the front asked what the visit was about, and she was informed that it was in regard to a claim. She called Mr. Riddle on the phone and he asked what the claim number is. She informed him that the claim number is 000-800-85286. In a few minutes, Mr. Riddle came out of his office and stood in the doorway. He asked if this was concerning the Solomon claim and he was answered in the affirmative. Mr. Riddle advised that he was expecting a client and he told the investigators that we should have called first. He then asked, how did you find me? Mr. Riddle was advised of the investigation into the death of Grant Solomon and that the truck that Tennessee Farm Bureau had sent to IAA Salvage Yard as salvage was potential evidence in the death investigation. He was asked to furnish documents pertaining to the claim of the 2015 Toyota Tacoma and he stated that he did not release documents pertaining to clients and that it would have to speak with his supervisor. Mr. Riddle was given a business card and investigators advised that they would remain in Manchester to await the results of his call to the supervisor. Mr. Riddle was shown a photograph of the truck as it sat in Aaron Solomon's driveway weeks after the July 20, 2020 incident at the WPI facility. It was pointed out to Mr. Riddle that the investigators were in possession of the truck and that the truck had been examined by an accident reconstruction team who determined that there was not enough damage to the truck to list it as totaled and salvaged. Investigators left the insurance office and waited in Manchester. Mr. Riddle did call and he advised that the information requested would have to be obtained through a subpoena to the TNFBI Legal Counsel in Columbia, Tennessee. Essentially, this letter illustrated the confrontation between private investigators and the adjuster that got Aaron the salvage certificate by fraudulent means. And what about the rocky ditch that Grant was found in and the way his body was positioned? His body sustained no injuries indicating he was dragged over rocks, but the rocks did tell a different story. In the photos taken by the Gallatin Police Department on July 20th, two rocks can be seen stained with what appears to be blood. But along with Grant's hat, goggles, and phone, the bloody rocks were left behind. When Angie and Gracie saw the pictures and spotted the bloody rocks, they went back to the ditch at WPI. At first, they were nowhere to be seen, but Gracie started digging through the rocks and found them a few layers down. But who had hidden them, and why? 
Grant was found underneath the front of the truck on his back, with his head facing the building. No matter what direction he was facing, if Grant was standing near or behind the truck when it struck him in the parking lot, his feet would have been toward the building. His feet facing the sidewalk suggests that's the direction he fell from. There was also a milk carton laying in front of the front driver's side tire. It should have been crushed, but it remained intact with the cap still on. Not to mention that the tall grass in front of the truck had gone completely undisturbed. There are two other important things captured in the photographs taken by Gallatin PD. Grant's glasses, and the tire tracks. Grant couldn't see without his glasses, so it stands to reason that he wouldn't voluntarily take them off. But they weren't found on his body. They were found at the top of the ditch by the sidewalk. Why would his glasses have been knocked off at the sidewalk if he was allegedly standing in the parking lot when the truck hit and dragged him? The photos also show a dirt imprint of the tires on the sidewalk. The tire marks are behind the wheels, though, meaning the truck was driving forward into the ditch from the sidewalk instead of rolling backward into it from the parking lot. Melanie Hicks is Angie's best friend, and they both decided they needed answers to Grant's unclear and suspicious death. They decided to ask Gallatin PD for help. When they went to sign forms to get records released to them, Officer Ty Wilson, head of accident reconstruction, wasn't there. Angie asked if they could tell Officer Wilson to call her when he gets back. It was weeks before Angie received a call. Hi, this is Ty Wilson of GPD. What can I do for you? Melanie and Angie were together when he finally called back. Angie explained that she was Grant's mom and introduced Melanie, saying that she had her friend with her who'd be listening in on the call. Melanie said, I'm Melanie Hicks, a family friend. We're just trying to understand what happened to Grant. Ty Wilson gave a 15-second vague overview with almost no information. His attitude came off as cold and insincere from the beginning. Angie asked if Grant was alert or awake, to which Officer Wilson replied, I don't look at the subjects, ma'am. Angie asked if the scene was investigated. There was nothing to investigate. Angie asked how long the five lanes on the road were shut down for accident reconstruction. We didn't have to shut the lanes down. We didn't need an accident reconstruction. Angie then asked who was in charge of accident reconstruction. That would be me, Officer Wilson told her. Melanie chimed in and said, Sir, there's a long history of domestic violence. In a rude tone, Officer Wilson asked, How do you spell Hicks? Ignoring Melanie's question of domestic violence. After spelling her last name, Officer Wilson hung the phone up on Angie and Melanie. There's pages of facts and evidence that prove that Grant's death is suspicious beyond a reasonable doubt. Rejection of evidence is rejection of the truth. Grant, Gracie, and Angie have been failed in so many ways by so many entities that were established to protect them. It's an unfortunate and inconvenient truth that law enforcement agencies such as the Gallatin Police Department can be corrupt, careless, and in the most dire cases, intentionally negligent as displayed by the call from Ty Wilson. It's a little more disappointing that Sumner Regional Medical Center was also careless, but perhaps even more flagrant are the actions of Pam Stevens at Williamson Memorial Funeral Home. Dr. John Fritch is a licensed funeral director and professional embalmer and author of four required texts in current funeral service curriculum. In the textbook, Fundamentals of Funeral Directing, Building a Professional Cornerstone, he wrote, quote, The noble profession of funeral service necessitates unquestionable integrity, a strong guiding moral compass, and a persevering ethical will in order to continually earn the trust of grieving families. Unfortunately, we are one poor decision or mistake away from disaster. In funeral service, we must always bring our best, 
no room for error exists. The primary tenet of death care is to serve as client families with the utmost care and respect. All funeral service providers are taught the golden rule and are expected to treat client families as if they were making arrangements for their own loved one. Death care professionals have the unique opportunity and responsibility of meeting people on the worst day of their lives. They enter the lives of strangers enduring a permanently life-altering event and must build a relationship of comfort and trust, which is a challenging but necessary task. It can be too easy to become death-blind. The calls and bodies and services just become a mundane routine. But this is what leads to empty and hurtful interactions from the first call to the final disposition. Death care laws vary by state, but the order of procedures remains relatively the same. Upon death, the funeral home receives a call known as the first call. During this time, the funeral director receives basic information about the deceased, such as their name and vital statistics, which is information such as their birth date and the time, date, and location of their death. This is also how the funeral director is able to make arrangements to transfer the remains to the funeral home. The arrangement conference happens after this and typically consists of the next of kin making the arrangements and the funeral director. Rather than an intimate and personal meeting, a clown car unloaded into the funeral home. Aaron arrived with two higher-up representatives from Grace Christian Academy and Steve Berger, who founded the Grace Chapel megachurch. Angie anticipated being outnumbered at the funeral home, so she brought Melanie Hicks with her. In a typical arrangement conference, the funeral director helps the family decide what kind of service and disposition they want for their loved one based on the loved one's wishes, religious requirements, and budget. This was much different. Angie was being told what kind of funeral was going to happen. As Grant's body was being prepared for viewing, the hairdresser spotted his cross necklace laying on top of the clothes he arrived at the funeral home in. Something made her grab the necklace to give to Angie, and she figured that the funeral director would give Angie Grant's clothes the next time she came by. Normally, all the items that come with a body to the funeral home are meticulously documented. This is because the family has to sign off on whether they want the items to be returned or not. A family may decide they want certain items to be at the viewing, or they may want some items buried or cremated with their loved one. Funeral director Pam Stevens didn't practice due diligence in the case of Grant's clothes because she disposed of them without consent or even notifying Angie. The first time Angie asked about the clothes, Pam lied about them and said the hospital had them. Angie called the hospital and they assured her that the funeral home had them. When Angie confronted Pam, she said that she did actually throw away the clothes because they were a biohazard. Angie was confused as to how they were a biohazard when Grant hadn't bled on them. At the funeral, Aaron took videos of Gracie, Angie, and Grant's girlfriend Hannah as they cried by Grant's body. At the end of the service, Aaron told Hannah that he took a lot of great photos of her and Grant together while she was grieving. He asked if she wanted him to send her the photos. She told him to keep them. Aaron also insisted he, Angie, and Gracie take a family photo with Grant in the casket. Angie was sickened by his request. It was already an emotionally charged day, and it seemed to only get darker. Grant's casket was open for viewing, but as is typical with open casket visitation and funerals, only the top half of the casket was opened. Angie wanted to see her son's whole body and asked if they could lift the bottom casket lid. What she saw was horrifying. As she looked at Grant's leg, she noticed that one of Grant's feet was bent at an unnatural angle. The embalmer assured her that it's common practice to break an ankle in order to fit a tall body into a casket, but even Angie knew that wasn't true. 
When it comes to visitation and open casket funerals, it's not so much a question of making a tall person fit into a casket, but more of choosing the right casket that accommodates the height of a tall person. There are dozens of types of caskets available at different dimensions, and customization is always an option too. Caskets have a few standard sizes that accommodate most body types, albeit not always perfectly. Occasionally, a casket will be slightly too large for the deceased, or the funeral director will slightly bend a particularly tall person's knees. In this case, the casket's often made to close over the bottom half of a person, even if it's an open casket funeral. There's no visible evidence that their legs have been arranged in a particular way. The average casket is about 84 inches or 7 feet in length and can accommodate someone up to 6'10", weighing 350 pounds. Grant was 6'3", which is well within range to fit comfortably in a standard-sized casket. In fact, breaking the deceased's legs or ankles to fit in a casket constitutes tampering with human remains and is illegal. But besides the illegality of mutilating Grant's body, it was a sickening sight for Angie. Even in his final place of rest, Grant couldn't find peace. Angie still hasn't been able to find peace, and Aaron's erratic behavior following Grant's death directly affected her. The only time she witnessed Aaron display a grief reaction is when he invited himself into her house the night of the vigil, despite not being allowed inside. Angie noticed that Aaron had been even worse about crossing boundaries after Grant died. She felt that he believed Grant's death meant he was allowed to show up uninvited to her house and do whatever he wanted. Aaron dissociated before screaming out, I did it, I did it, it's all my fault. I'm a cursed man, I killed my son. He dropped to the floor and began rolling, yelling that he was a cursed man whose father and son were dead. Before Angie could grab her camera to record his outbreak, Gracie and her friends returned from the vigil. When he heard Gracie enter, he quickly got up off the floor, silent. On another occasion, Aaron barged into Angie's house while Melanie was present. Aaron asked Angie if she had found Grant's pine tar bat. She told him that she had in fact found it and kept it by her bedside as a weapon to protect herself. Then he asked about the small aluminum bat displayed at the funeral that Grant used as a child. Since he already wasn't even invited into the house, Angie didn't allow Aaron to enter Grant's room. She retrieved the small bat and handed it to him. As Aaron turned the bat over in his hands, he said, if you really want to hurt somebody, you could use this bat because it's aluminum and can kill a man and it also gives you clearance. He demonstrated the clearance the bat gave him in the doorframe. Pam Stevens informed Angie and Aaron that the grave plots in the cemetery were grouped in sets of four. Angie wanted to give Grant as much space as possible between other graves, so she and Aaron agreed to buy the other three plots but keep them empty. During a counseling session soon after, Aaron expressed that he wanted to be a family again. Angie told him that they were never going to be a family again. After all, where was the sense of family when Aaron was making all of those decisions for Grant without Angie? The additional grave plots to give Grant space hadn't been purchased. Three days after Angie and Gracie told Aaron they were never going to be a family again, Aaron paid for the other three grave plots. On the purchase form, it was written that grave number one is for Gracie, number three is for Angie, and number four is for Aaron. The disturbances to Angie's grief were perpetuated further with the way Grant's gravesite has been treated following his burial. Grace Christian Academy paid for Grant's funeral and gifted Grant's grave plot. Ironic, considering they were no help when Gracie and Grant reached out to them. Because of Aaron's ties with Steve Berger, however, he felt that because the church gifted Grant's plot, that it belonged to him. This couldn't be further from the truth, because in the state of Tennessee, both parents have equal rights when it comes to the grave of their child. 
Despite Aaron believing that he alone owned Grant's plot, he had nothing to do with adorning his gravesite in flowers and memorabilia. Angie had to fight Aaron to even put Grant's name on a grave marker. It was as if Aaron didn't even want any trace of Grant left on this earth, and wanted to take away his identity, even in death. Angie put money aside and raised money to pay for a memorial stone. She, Gracie, and Hannah designed one together, but Aaron was trying to prevent it from ever seeing the light of day. They were at least able to get a small grave marker with his name on it. The ladies took it upon themselves to adorn the gravesite with two crosses, flowers, and a pitching diamond. One cross was handmade from wood, and the other was made of flowers. They visited Grant's grave every day, and when they went on Easter Sunday, everything looked fine. When they visited the next day, everything was gone. Even the grave marker with his name on it was gone. The only thing left behind were 12 dying white roses. Angie's friends with the groundskeeper, so she decided to ask him what happened. He told her that Aaron called and demanded everything be taken off the grave. Since the cemetery was owned by Williamson Memorial Funeral Home, it was Pam Stevens who ordered the groundskeeper to gather all of the items from the gravesite. Aaron finally agreed on a large grave marker with pictures of Grant etched in the stone. Angie bought a large display of flowers again, but three separate times the flower display had been destroyed. When the florist looked at the damage to the display each time, he reassured Angie that it wasn't when that knocked it over. It appeared to have been deliberately destroyed. As of 2023, Grant has a memorial bench paid for by Angie, Gracie, and Hannah. After the bench had been placed at the gravesite, Angie bought a wreath of flowers that had decorative ornaments. The next time she visited Grant, the wreath was completely demolished. The ornaments were broken, and some were nearly 30 feet away as if they had been kicked, thrown, or hit. To this day, the person desecrating Grant's grave hasn't been caught, and his death remains ruled an accident. Grant Solomon was an extraordinary young man that positively impacted everyone around him. He was vibrant, intelligent, and talented, and was being recruited by Division I schools. He was driven by his love for those he cared about. Grant was a loyal friend, protective son and brother, and an adoring boyfriend. On May 12, 2021, Freedom for Gracie published Gracie's testimony to YouTube. It serves not only as testimony, but as a victim impact statement for a case that desperately needs to be reopened. Hi, my name is Gracie Solomon. I'm 16 years old, and I'm going to be reading my statement that I wrote when I was 13 years old in 2021. Um, I filmed a video of me reading this statement, and this is my first time rereading this statement since then. I hate my dad. I am absolutely terrified of him from everything he has done to me, my brother, and my mom. I don't want to call him my dad anymore. He has never listened to me. He has hurt me sexually, physically, and mentally. He has caused so much pain for my family. He has tried to manipulate me and has manipulated others, and it has worked. Ever since I was born, my dad has done awful things to me. First, he never let my mom bathe me. It was always him. So by not letting mom come in at all, it meant that he could do anything to me. I would always tell my mom I felt like I was more of a wife to him instead of his daughter. He would even bring his phone into the bathroom with him. At the time, I didn't know it, but I strongly believe he was taking pictures and videoing me. I had to learn to hide my body from him by flipping my hair over because he wouldn't leave me alone while I was showering and getting out. 
He would make excuses like me needing a towel or my hair was hard for me to wash on my own, so he would be able to help me. He is a sick person. After showering, he would sit me down in his lap with only a towel to brush my hair. He brushed my, through my hair so aggressively, I would sometimes cry. I had terrible scars from that, and they are still somewhat visible. I even remember taking a bath as a young kid, probably first grade, and him washing me with a dove bar of soap completely up and inside of my privates. I know now it was probably his hand, but I was too young to know any better. All of my grandparents knew about the abuse and still supported him. When I was at his house at night, I would sometimes feel like I couldn't control my body and I would get really sleepy and wake up in my dad's bed. One night, I woke up with rashes on my inner thighs, both of them. My privates also burned frequently. One of Grant's friends, Josh Griswold, remembers looking over the upstairs railing and seeing my head slung over and my dad wrapping me in his lap. Every night, my dad would lock his bedroom door. Sometimes I was sick or crying. Most of the time, it was about me missing my mom so much, and I would bang on his door and scream for him. He never would answer. While I lived with him in fourth grade, I practically broke my back by falling and hitting the edge of a concrete culvert and big rocks. It was almost impossible to walk for a while. He didn't care enough to even take me to the doctors. I have records of how bad my back was injured three years later from the incident. In the car, if we said something that made him mad, he would speed really fast. It would scare me and Grant. Dad is super manipulative and has manipulated so many people. He even tries to convince me that I'm being brainwashed by my mom and everything I remember never happened. He tries to scare me into thinking my mom's house is unsafe because he knows how scared I am of robberies and kidnapping and getting taken from my mom. In fact, he took me away from my mother for years when I was just ending my kindergarten year. Later on, he told me that I was never going back to my mom and that she was actually dead. I don't remember when I found out she was alive, but I know Grant and I both believe she was dead for years because of him. One time at my pops and nana's lake house, my dad's parents, I remember hearing my grandpa say to Grant and I that he wanted to kill my mom. It made Grant so mad, he started throwing stuff in the room and I was so hurt, I started crying. After I was finally able to start seeing my mom again, my dad got mad because we didn't want to leave her. When the cops showed up, they told Grant and I that we had to leave in the cop car and mom couldn't be the one to take us. They said my dad specifically asked for us to be taken in the cop car so that we would learn to not disobey him again. My mom filed for an emergency court hearing to get us back. We were in North Carolina for one of Grant's baseball tournaments when my dad said we had to go back home for court. It was only my dad and I. Grant stayed. We stopped at a hotel room in Asheville. My dad only got one bed when I asked for two. It made me really nervous before we even got in the hotel room. When we went to bed, I remember him slowly getting closer to me until I was on the edge of the bed. I kept waking up by feeling his feet rub against mine. I kept waking up and then finally realized that I felt something hard on my lower back close to my butt. I drew an illustration of what I, it was like. I felt really scared and knew it was wrong. At court, dad's attorney got inches away from my face and tried to manipulate me into thinking what my dad did to me didn't really happen by saying, do you really think your dad would do something like that? 
Do you actually remember that happening? He was so close to me that I could smell his cigarette breath and his tone really scared me. When I learned I had to go back to North Carolina with my dad, I was completely broken and I didn't want to stop hugging my mom. He told my dad to pull me off of her and leave because he could. I eventually was able to go to family therapy, sometimes with my dad and Grant. One time I told Grant he could leave the room because he would always be there for me. I told him I was terrified of him being at my school and trying to get me. He got so mad, he reached to throw a chair at me, but ended up storming out of the room. He was screaming and his face was blood red. My counselor tried to calm him down. Through therapy, I've set boundaries with my dad so that I would feel safer. Over the past couple of years, he has respected my boundaries, surprisingly. Now, ever since Grant passed, he ignores everything that I have said. He is trying to force me to come live with him this Sunday. I am so terrified of him. I am so scared. I can't go in general or without Grant. I am not going. I begged him in counseling to never do this and he promised me he would never try to take me again. He is a liar. I am so scared of Dad. I have seen him do terrible things to people I love and myself. Because of this, I strongly believe Dad killed Grant and now he is going to kill me. Grant and my dad never had a good or good father-son relationship because of my dad. Dad would always harm, threaten, scare, and stress Grant out so, so badly. Before my dad took us from our mom, Grant and I were scared of dad because his, of his ridiculous and terrifying behavior. From trying to kill my mom and constantly yelling at her to freaking us out from all the things he has done to us and our mom. When he took us, he was just as mean and hurtful as he is now. One of the things Grant said when Dad tried to kill her was, when I'm 6'4", you will not be able to do this anymore. I've always thought about that so much. Grant meant that, and he, was so, and he was scared and so hurt by his dad. That is just awful, and Grant was so young. Dad was controlling, and still is, in many ways. One way was by giving Indian sunburns and telling him that he would always have control over Grant. Dad would just scream at Grant, like I could hear it from anywhere in the house. It was awful. One time Grant and I were watching TV together and all of a sudden Dad comes up and grabs Grant by his shirt, pulls him up and just yells right in his face. It was so bad to watch. Dad would get into Grant's head so much. He would limit food and call him fat, criticize him to the point where Grant would just feel so awful. Dad would limit the time Grant had in the bathroom, on his phone, etc. But why the bathroom? Dad would keep our phones in his bathroom, which is in the locked bedroom. Dad never wanted Grant to be around Hannah, his girlfriend, or any of his friends. My dad even kept college letters and threw away the ones he didn't like. One of those multiple could have been what Grant really wanted. Dad only wanted him to go to Ivy League schools. Dad would also use Grant's truck as a way to control him, too. Grant was so scared of him. He would apologize so much if he did anything wrong. Like if he was late to hit or if he was too sick, he was scared dad would get mad. Even if he missed a day of school, the whole rest of the day he was worried about dad. The day my dad took us, Grant tried to get out of the car to jump out to get back to mom. When he tried, dad grabbed Grant's wrist so tight, Grant thought it broke. And recently still, I would notice Grant touching that same wrist. Grant had a plan to run away with me, so we did. We got a few things together and we went to our mom's house. Dad is and was an awful dad to Grant. I would never want Grant to even have to know somebody like him, and I am happy for Grant because he will never have to deal with him ever again.
Dad would take any, sorry. <laughs> Dad would take any or all of his anger out on Grant, anger outbursts. He made Grant train all the time and never had a break and visit lots of schools. Dad would stalk Grant and come to every single practice, training, tryouts, just literally anything Grant was at. Dad would be right there. Grant was even scared enough to open up to Pastor Steve about help for our family, Grant, Mom, and I. Pastor Steve and Dad lied and said Grant wanted to talk about his faith and strengthening his faith. That was said during my brother's funeral. Even though Mom and I have always known that he went for help because he told us. Grant was my protector and my mom's. I didn't realize how much he protected us. However, now that he is gone, my dad is attacking me again. Hunter, one of Grant's great friends, told me that Grant had plans to reopen and testify for me and him again in court as an adult. A month after his 18th birthday, he mysteriously died. I want my dad gone. Even sitting here three years later, I still believe that my father killed my brother Grant, abused my brother, abused my mom, and I know he raped me. And I'm here for justice. Thank you so much for listening, and stay tuned for the next Story from the Mortuary.